0: Genesis, studying the journey of Abraham, his journey of faith. By the way, for your study, if you like to read and, and uh, be ahead, you can read basically a chapter a week. We're going to cover a chapter a week between now and the end of November. Now this morning, I've got to finish chapter 12 last week and move us through 12 and 13 this week. But then after that, it'll be a chapter... Um each week. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I don't have time to read all of chapters twelve and thirteen to you this morning, so you want to keep your copy of uh, Scripture open, and I'll reference the verses that we are covering uh, as we walk through these two chapters this morning. God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. You remember, we talked about this last week. He called him to leave it all behind, uh, to follow him, to go to a place that was unknown that the Lord would reveal. And so Abram and his family began that journey leaving Ur. Going to the land, the Lord is leading the two. But we saw last week, the end of chapter 11, that they stopped off in Haran. Um, so he, he's taken the first step of obedience. We don't know exactly why the stop off in Haran. It may have been that Terah, his father, uh, was in failing health. We know that Terah uh, died there in, in Haran. But in Genesis chapter 12, it's kind of actually step 2 or, or step 1b. You see in verses 1 through 3, God is reaffirming and repeating his call. The call initially came to Abram when he was in Ur. Now God is reaffirming and repeating that call when he instructed Abram to leave Ur. It's time now to leave Haran. He's supposed to leave behind his uh, father, his father's influence, his kindred, and move to the land that God has for him. And Abram has left everything behind. And you see in verses one through three, God's promises to him He'll make him a great nation, He'll bless him, He'll make his name great. Make him a blessing to all peoples. You know, it's interesting if you think back in chapter 11 um, that we reviewed last week, the big rebellion in chapter 11, part of that was man's desire to make his name great. But here you have God promising to make Abram's name great. And I thought about in in the Psalms, in the 146th and 147th Psalm, David declares, it is the Lord who lifts up a man. Uh, Samuel, the prophet Samuel declared, it's the Lord who brings one man low and exalts another. Jesus himself uh, declared that the one who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, God is going to give Abram a name, a great name. Abram's his faithful servant and God lets him know, I'm going to make your name great. Basically, your name's going to be a household word. You're going to be known by all peoples in all times. Verses 6-9, so Abram, Sarai, his wife, and Lot, and quite a large entourage of servants and others have now arrived at Canaan, and they stop in Shechem. And you see in verse 7, from there God tells Abram, this land is going to be given to your offspring. And you notice that Moses mentions, it's Moses who wrote um, the book of Genesis, he mentions in verse 6 that the Canaanites were in the land. Remember that Moses is writing about 700 years Uh, after Abram, he's writing this account. He mentioned that there were Canaanites in the land. Why is that important to know? Well, the Canaanites were incredibly wicked people. They were uh, evil people, and they were unrepentant. God is going to judge them, and God is going to take the land from them, but not right now. This promise is for the descendants of Abram. It's going to have a future fulfillment. And there are times, even in our lives, where God's Promises are not seen in the immediate time, but they're for the future. But what's important to remember is this, regardless, God always keeps his promises. What he has promised, he will fulfill, and Abram had confidence and faith in that. Look at verse 7. It says that he built an altar to the Lord, and then look down in verse 8. When he moves from Shechem to the hill country between Bethel and Ai, again, he builds an altar to the Lord. What is Abram doing? He is claiming this land for the Lord. The Lord has promised to give it his descendants, but his descendants are going to be the people of God, and so Abram is claiming the land for the Lord, and we're going to see this happen over and over again, that Abram builds an altar to the Lord. Now, this might be surprising to you, but the word in Hebrew, the word that we translate altar simply means a place of sacrifice, It's an altar. And so Abram, as he's pursuing God's plan and purpose for his life, as he's claiming the land for the Lord based on the promise of God for his descendants, along the way there is going to be sacrifice. That's an important thing for us to remember today. You see, you and I, if we're going to walk with God, it's going to require sacrifice. Because let's be really honest, we live in Canaanite territory today we live among people who are incredibly and increasingly wicked rampant immorality all manner of violence uh, open rebellion against the one true god if we're going to walk with god in this kind of environment it's going to require regular sacrifice on our part to see the plan and purpose of god fulfilled in us i thought about it as i read about abram's building of these altars of sacrifice in the midst of evil and wickedness i thought about Paul's words in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Many of you know these verses. You could probably quote them with me. Paul said, I urge you, brothers, I urge you, brothers, to make of yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your spiritual worship. And don't, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, We can't be conformed to the evil around us. And if we're not going to be conformed to the evil around us, that requires daily sacrifice. Why is it daily? Because you and I are living sacrifices. A dead sacrifice is a sacrifice. It's dead, it's done, that's it. But as a living sacrifice, if we're not careful, it's very easy to crawl off of the altar. And so daily, we have to make the choice that we're going to be a sacrifice unto the Lord. Well, as Abram is building these altars to worship the one true God, let's remember that he's building these altars in a land and around people who worship many gods. The Canaanites had had all kinds, all manner of altars where they offered worship to false gods. So as Abram is building these altars and as he's worshiping the one true God, he's making a declaration that there is one true God and we should worship him only. And he's making this declaration throughout the land. And it's important, I think, to notice that God, that Abram is not making this declaration about God in secret. You know, you can imagine if you were the one moving into a land full of wicked and evil people who worship other gods, you might want to be careful what you said about their gods. But Abram is not making this declaration of one true God in secret. Historical records tell us that the Canaanites often built their shrines or their places of worship in groves of oaks. Look in verse 6, it tells us that Abram built an altar at the oak of Morah. That was a very prominent landmark, so it's very likely that was a place of worship of these false gods. So what is Abram doing? He's claiming the land for the Lord, and he's declaring that God is the one true God, that he is the only one worthy of our worship. John Piper author and and pastor once said missions exist because worship doesn't what's he saying well god's desire is that his name be declared among all peoples of all nations why because god as the creator god is the only one worthy of worship by all of his creation that's why we send missionaries to other lands and to other cultures to help people come to the knowledge of who god is and come to the place of worshiping god with their very lives. Well, Abram is a missionary. He's claiming land. He's claiming territory for God. He's declaring the one true God who is worthy of worship. You and I are missionaries, aren't we? And I think it begs the question, what territory are we claiming for God? How are we in the, in the place where he has planted us, how are we declaring him to be the one true God? Abram is a a missionary, he's claiming territory and he's claiming that this land will be the place where God is worshiped. Well, in verses 10-20 through of chapter 12, we have a change in the scene here. Before before we go to this scene change, let me mention that even the heroes of the faith were human. They made mistakes. There were times that they faltered or their faith uh, faltered and, and they failed. We need to be careful we don't put men and women of faith on, on pedestals and make them superhuman. We've seen in our day that that's just not the case. And God's Word, when you look at biographical studies, character studies in God's Word, God always presents the key characters of Scripture in, in pretty shocking candidness. And that's a good thing. One of the great things about the biographies and Scripture is you can look at these biographies, you can see real people going through real experiences in in a very real world. These these aren't fairy tales. And as we look and, and we see the whole story, we're encouraged by this. Why? It tells us God uses imperfect people. He did then and he still does today. He uses imperfect people to accomplish his purposes. Now, with that in mind, let's look at Genesis chapter 12 and let's read verses 10 through 20 together in Genesis 12. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. It's always a great thing for a man to say to his wife, by the way. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. For her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him his sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Well, what's happened here? Abram has been in an area of the promised land called the Negev, and it's a very dry and parched region of Canaan. Now, Abram didn't need a lot uh, to raise crops because he primarily had livestock, but still the time came, Scripture tells us, where in this region there was a famine, or in Hebrew a food shortage. It could have been caused by crop failure or drought or disease, any, any number of things. And what we see here is the first... Uh, major test of Abram's newly established faith in the Creator God. He'd he'd been building these altars and and declaring his faith, but it seems that God has decided to show Abram the lack of depth in his faith. God's going to use this famine to develop Abram's faith. And, And let me say, and you know this if you've walked the Lord for very long at all, you can expect him to test your faith. And God needs to test our faith because untested faith is really not faith at all. We, we can talk all the time about our faith in the Lord, but it's not until those moments of trial and testing come that we really see if we have true faith. God's going to bring us into difficult circumstances to, to test our faith or, or to prove our faith. And, and you understand the testing of our faith is not for God to see how we're going to respond. God, God knows that. He knows what the future holds. He knows the outcome of, of any trials that we go through. So, so why does God test our faith then? God tests our faith. He, he tests the depth and the strength of our faith for us to see. Typically, when, when the testing of our faith happens, it's followed by a time of learning and a time of growth, and that's what we're going to see in, in Abraham's life, a time to make faith stronger. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. Typically, when we come to difficult circumstances in our life, typically our, our default response is what we can do on our own, how we can solve or how we can cope, and it, typically we leave God out of the equation. We don't think to turn to him. We don't think to trust him for our need. And we're going to see on more than one occasion, Abram's reflexive response when it comes to difficulty is lying. Now, you can give him a little bit of credit. He didn't lie to take advantage of people. He didn't lie to to cheat people. But Abram, when confronted with difficulty, became an expert in telling believable lies in order to save his own skin. That's what he did. That's his default. But Abram's first failure is not this lie regarding Sarai. Before we get to this lie, we have to see and understand that Abram failed his first test of faith when he made the decision to go to Egypt. Abram had a relationship with the Almighty God. Abram knew that God had the wisdom and, and, and the power to see him through anything, including a famine. Perhaps God would have, if, if Abram had sought God, perhaps God would have instructed him to go to Egypt where food was more plentiful. The problem is, Abram never sought God's counsel. He never sought God's counsel, he just trusted his own wisdom. And when the famine came, he made the decision to move his family and everything he had to Egypt. F.B. Meyer, who is a theologian and pastor and author and evangelist in, in England in the late 18 and early 1900s, describes the literary and symbolic meaning of Egypt in biblical literature. Listen to what he says. In the figurative language of Scripture, Egypt stands for an alliance with the world. Abram acted on his own judgment. He looked at his difficulties. He became paralyzed with fear he grasped at the first means of deliverance that suggested itself. Without taking the counsel of his heavenly protector, Abram went down to Egypt. What is he saying? He's saying the the move to Egypt signified greater trust and greater reliance on man than God. And it's good to remember when we're in difficulty or we're in danger, it's good to remember the words of David in the 27, or Psalm chapter 20 and verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Abram was trusting in a land of chariots and horses, and not trusting in the God who had called him to faith. Now, you can look at that and say, well, is, is going to Egypt really, is it, was that a sin? I, you know, I guess we could say it's not sinful per se, but anytime we don't seek the counsel of the Lord, we, we set ourselves up into a position where we can easily slide into sin, and that's exactly what you see happening in Abram's life starting in verse 11. We see him take this moral tumble. He tells Sarah, "I will tell them that, that you're not my wife, but you're my sister. Well, and that was a half-truth. She was his half-sister. They, they had the same father. Terah was the father of both Abram and Sarai, but, but they had different mothers. But he's concerned, why? Because at, at 65, she's still young and evidently still quite attractive. And some of you that are at that age might say, well, how is that possible? Remember, she lived to be 127, so really she's, she's at midlife here. She'd be like a, a 40-year-old woman today. And Abram's concerned about that. He's afraid that he might be killed so that someone could take her from him. And so he got very wise in human wisdom, and he figured out, you know, if I, if I say that I'm her brother, according to, to ancient laws, I'm her guardian, and, and anyone who wanted to take Sarah as his wife would have to approach Abram and, and make arrangements with him. And, and I guess he figured, well, you know, if that happens... That process will give me enough time to figure something out. Saying that she's his sister is certainly a reasonable solution, but it it backfired. Look at verses 14 and 15. Sure enough, the Egyptians noticed her beauty. Some Egyptian officials brought her to Pharaoh's attention, and so he took her into his palace, and then he begins to give Abram all these gifts, sheep and oxen and donkeys and servants and camels. They're kind of like wedding gifts, but they're given... To, to the legal uh, guardian protector so Abram's lie has has spared him what about Sarai ladies how do you like to be the wife of Abram fortunately the marriage rituals of this day there was a waiting period long enough to ensure the bride wasn't already pregnant so she wasn't experiencing the immediate danger of being violated but clearly She's in danger, and while she's in danger, Abram's wealth is increasing exponentially at the hand of Pharaoh. Now, I don't know if he's enjoying all that or if it's just digging him deeper and deeper into a a hole, but all this wealth coming his way. Now, Sarai is going to give birth to the nation that will bless all people, so although Abram has failed to protect her, God is certainly going to step in and do that. And so Pharaoh and his household are afflicted with all kinds of diseases. He, he recognizes the source. And look at verses 18 and 19. Here you see a pagan ruler questioning the integrity of God's man. You know, when, when we don't act with integrity in how we deal with others, you can't help but wonder what kind of opinion people develop about our God. There are many people who won't embrace the God of the Bible because of the moral failure they see in his followers. Pharaoh, amazingly, does not punish Abram in any way. He doesn't even ask him to return the gifts. He simply kicks him out of Egypt. Look in verse 20. He, he sends his men, his servants, to escort him out. He basically says to them, be sure you get this guy all the way to the boundary line and make sure he leaves Egypt. I don't want any more of him or his God. And it's a disgraceful exit. And there's loss to Abram's integrity. There's loss to his reputation, not just among the Egyptians, but among even his own people. Well, before we move to chapter 13, I think we have to pause here and say, isn't it amazing that in spite of Abram's colossal failure, despite his lack of faith, God did not give up on Abram he made a mess and yet God still planned to use Abram to make an example of genuine faith God didn't didn't look for another man he didn't say well that that certainly didn't work out let me find someone else what does that tell us it tells us failure is not the end Missteps in our faith are are not the end. Faltering is not the end. God still had a plan to use Abram, and if you're in a place in your walk with God that you've made some missteps and you haven't acted in faith and you think God's done with you, that's not necessarily true. You're going to face, we're all going to face famine and failure in our walk, and God knows that we are weak people and that we are prone to, to compromise, but he doesn't give up on us. If we are willing, what does he he do? He helps us up and he dusts us off and he sets us back on the path to his perfect purpose in our lives. So take courage today if if where Abram is at this moment in Genesis 12. If that represents where you are, take courage today. It's just a willingness on our part to repent and to return. Well, in chapter 13, Abram and Lot and, and Sarai and all their company are returning to Canaan. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 tells us he returns to that spot between Bethel and Ai where he had built an altar. He returns there and it says he calls on the name of the Lord. And I want you to understand that word call has a little bit more intensity. He, he cries out. He calls out to God. He recognizes his, his failing and, and what it has cost and he calls out to God. And there's a very important principle of repentance here in this one verse. Abram has returned to the place where he has been with God. He returns to the place of, of worship, the place of fellowship with God. He's returning to his first love. He's coming in repentance and asking God for renewal. That makes a difference in whether failure is, is final and permanent. Well, in verse 13.5, up to this point, Lot has just kind of been a tag-along, almost an an appendage to the story. Who is Lot? He's Abram's nephew. Haran, Abram's brother, had died years back when they were living in Ur, and Abram not having a son has kind of taken Lot under wing. Uh, I think it's important to note here that if you look back in through 3 Abram was instructed to leave his country his people, and his father's house. That would have included Lot. And and up to this point in the story, there haven't been problems with Lot, but we're going to see that Abram's failure to completely obey is going to cause further complications. Well, what do we know about Lot? Lot Lot has prospered. He is wealthy just like Abram. And riches in their time were not determined by gold and silver financial investment. They were determined by what? By livestock. And Abram and Lot both had large herds and large flocks. So what's happening now is the the water and the grass is limited, and so the servants are fighting over the best grazing and the best watering spots. And so the time has come for a decision to be made about how they're going to move forward. Now, Abram could have called Lot uh, to his tent and said, look, uh, I'm, I'm the head of the family here. You have benefited, you have profited, you've become wealthy through your association with me. And not only that, but God has promised to give me this land. It's time for you to move and go on and find your own place. But in verse 8, that's not what Abram does. He affirms their relationship. He expresses his desire for peace and harmony between them. Evidently, Abram did learn some lessons down in Egypt. He decided to trust God for his provision, to trust God with his future. And so he gives Lot first choice of the territory and he agrees to accept whatever is left. And it's encouraging to see that Abram's decision-making at this point included the God in whom he places faith. He believed that God would provide regardless of the outcome. Well, what about Lot? Had he been a man of character, a man of faith, he probably would have responded, well, absolutely not, uncle. You're exactly right. I owe you a great debt of gratitude. All that I have is because of you. You didn't, you didn't leave me down in error, and I've prospered because of you. And I insist that you make the first choice and I'll accept whatever is left. That's not what Lot did. Lot chose Greed. Over gratitude. He chose wealth over family. He chose to trust himself over trusting God. And so he looked at the land and he saw the fertile, lush plain of the Jordan. And look down in verse 10. He sees the fertile, lush plain of the Jordan, but in verse 10, you see this parenthetical statement, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Why, why is that statement there? Why did God Uh, have Moses impress upon Moses the need for that statement because the people reading Genesis would have been shocked to know that the plain of Jordan was, was fertile after God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah that plain was arid and hot and dusty and it wasn't suitable for farming without some type of modern irrigation That's why he adds that statement. And I know most of you know the story. You you know what's coming in a few chapters ahead in this narrative. But look at verses 12 and 13. Let's make sure we don't miss this. Lot saw that fertile land, and it says he moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. If you happen to notice on your bulletin, I titled the message, Bad Decisions. We've already uh, moved through and covered Abram's bad decisions that led to trouble in Egypt. And now Lot's making a, a bad decision. But before we extract some lessons from that, let me, let me finish the chapter. Abram, because of his grace toward Lot and his trust in God, you see that God reaffirms his covenant promise with Abram in verses 14 through 17, he reminds Abram this land was being deeded, as far as Abram could see, this land was deeded in perpetuity to Abram and his descendants. And those descendants, God would multiply until they were as numerous as the dust of the earth. So God again affirms to Abram that he's going to take care of him, he's going to provide for him, he's going to fulfill the promise he's made. And verse 18 tells us, Abram settles in Hebron where he spends much of his remaining life and what does he do he builds an altar to the Lord claiming the land for the Lord and claiming that the Lord God is the only true god worthy of worship now let's let's move to application by considering Lot's decision lot did not consider the Lord as he made a decision that would shape his future and that's, that's an amazing thing when you consider that Lot observed up close and personal from a decision that his uncle made in Egypt, Lot observed that failing to consider the counsel of God is setting yourself up for disaster. Now, his decision makes sense from a human perspective. It, it was a no-brainer. He chose the best plot of land. But he didn't consider the potential danger of, of settling among people who were wicked And whose scripture says, sin before the Lord exceedingly. There was no spiritual consideration to Lot's decision. He didn't consider these people he was settling among. He wasn't trusting God. He was fending for himself. His plans were completely selfish. And because of his greed, Lot put himself and his family and his future in great jeopardy. And so this morning, I want us to think about five quick Simple principles we see here, principles to make godly decisions that Lot totally ignored. And the first one may sound somewhat cliche ish, but that's very simply you seek God first. And, and when I say seek God first, I'm saying when you're trying to make a decision, a godly decision, you, you seek God and you really listen. See a lot of times we say we seek God, we go to God already having decided what the plan is, already deciding what we're going to do and expecting him to bless or put his seal of approval on our plan. That's not what it means to seek God first. It means that we set aside all of our plans and all of our dreams and all of our desires and we ask God, God is what what is your will and what is your purpose in this? So we seek him first. Secondly, you you have to look beyond the immediate. You have to look beyond today there may be some immediate positive benefits that come to decision and those are easy to see but you've got to slow down and you've conflate long enough to see the long-term consequences you've got to be willing to wait to let God help you see what he sees and to show you his way and his plan and his purpose it can't just be about the immediate that you see and the benefit that there is today. And, and the third principle goes right along with that, and that is you have to maximize the impact of negative consequences. See, a lot of times we'll look at a decision, we see this positive benefit that's really appealing to us, and if we're honest, we say, well, there, there are some negatives in this, but we, we minimize the negatives, and we maximize the positives, what we actually ought to do is minimize the positives and and maximize the negatives. We have to be realistic about the negative impact of a decision because it's usually much worse than we expect. And So as we are seeking the Lord and as we're trying to look beyond the immediate, we have to really consider the negative consequences. Lot clearly did not do that. The fourth principle I'd throw out to you this morning is focus on others, not yourself. Any decisions we make with self-interest usually end up being much more painful than we anticipated. Selfish decisions bring a lot more pain than they do pleasure. That's why Paul in Philippians said, Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or out of your own interest, but always consider others more important than yourself. Finally, this morning I would say we always should consider the decision's impact on our walk with the Lord. That's really the bottom line. Any decision that leads us to spiritual compromise in our relationship and our walk with the Lord is always a bad decision. If we're truly going to seek God, if we're truly looking for his purpose to be fulfilled in us, then we need to be careful to consider the impact of that decision on our walk with the Lord.